Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Another way to support the podcast is by switching to Brave. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome or used Safari without even thinking, but it's time to upgrade to something better. With other browsers, ads and trackers follow your every move and slow down your loading speeds. The Brave browser is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all the trackers and spyware. So it works just like Chrome, except cleaner and faster. By using Brave, you protect yourself from surveillance. Many popular sites have over 100 trackers, and these trackers can collect your inferred sexual orientation, political views, religious beliefs, even your location, sometimes right up to your exact GPS coordinates. Brave is a privacy-focused browser that blocks all of this out of the box. It also blocks all those annoying banner ads and those commercials on YouTube. Brave even shows you how many ads and trackers you've blocked in your lifetime, and how much data and time you've saved by doing so. It's really satisfying. Switching to Brave is also super easy and quick. You can import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in Brave in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. All you have to do is go to brave.com slash and switch over. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to a new browser. Be ahead of the curve. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today, I have the great honor of talking with Greg Lukianoff, uh, the president of the FIRE Foundation, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, and the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, we had Jonathan Haidt on the podcast uh, before to talk about that book. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, all sorts of things. Welcome, Greg. Did I pronounce your last name right? That's pretty good. Um, the, um, uh, the, the only one that really grates me is Lukianoff. Um <laughs> <laughs> people see that eye and what's dumb is my i mean my dad was came over in the 50s my dad's like a billion years old um the i and the a for some reason you're supposed to know that that actually stands for the russian letter ya um which so when russians come over now with this name and it's actually pretty common in, in russia it's they spell it l-u-k-y-a-n-o-v which is much closer to how you say it um so i got stuck with a with with the french transliteration you that's funny yeah. so how would you sort of uh describe yourself to our to our listeners um I'm a did i get it did fan. i get it right did i get it right <laughs> or uh, did i miss anything I'm a comic book fan. I'm, uh, I have two kids. Um, I, I would actually say, I mean, the top two things I would say is I'm the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, um, and I'm the co-author of Coddling of the American Mind. Um, those were my, my, my two biggest so that's good. things. So what do you think, I mean, since the book came out, uh, what do you think has changed 
Yeah, because we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, the yeah. kind of the various threats to free speech and to open uh, discussion and things like that. Um, what do you think, if anything, has changed since the book came out? Oh, wow. Okay, so um, I'm doing a series called Catching Up with Coddling. Um, I have a blog um, called Eternally Radical Idea. I decided to go retro and, you know, decided to start blogging in 2020, but I don't care. Um, the, uh, <laughs> and I've been updating the data. And so uh, what, what have I established so far? Uh, one, uh, the mental health crisis for younger people is getting worse. Um, that was... That was really horrifying to us when we were, we were because we wrote the original article back in 2015, basically saying, you know, um, that uh, we, we think that we're teaching the, the habits of anxious, of, of anxious and depressed people to a generation of young people. So we thought maybe there'd be some slight noticeable uptick in anxiety and depression. And then it was just huge. Like we were looking at the stats and there was a little bit of like, wow, we were right wow, I really wish we weren't right because this is terrifying. And then when we actually looked at the data since um, we, we finished uh, uh, gathering the data together, uh, the book came out in 2018, um, it's just gotten much worse. And the uptick that we weren't expecting was that um, most of these things have been hitting young women and girls much harder um, in terms of anxiety and depression. But there was a big spike in suicide um, and depression for, for men. Um, or and, and boys uh, after the after the book came out, and that was pretty that was a pretty sad thing to see. Um, the uh, when it comes to polarization, I, I, I gave the, the title of the because we, we talk about six different causal threads in the book. Uh, I've did, did the mental health one; it's gotten worse um, in every category, unfortunately, and particularly hitting really the young kids too, which breaks my heart. Um, the next one is political polarization. Um, you're going to be shocked at uh, at what we found on that. <laughs> wait for it it got worse <laughs> um so that's yeah. gotten worse according to basically every measure what were you gonna say yeah i just I, the political polarization piece is has gotten just astounding like I, i've seen it in in my family in my wife's family in among our friend groups I mean, it used to you know, I have a very big family and we include nice. people, people who are, you know, atheists, people who are very kind of devout, kind of fundamentalist Christians and everything in between people who are into Buddhism and crystals and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> These are people and, and people politically who were everything from libertarian to far left to far right to, and all these people were able to get along for decades and yet suddenly in the last couple of years, for some reason, people are, uh, you know, not going to weddings, uh, not yeah. in some cases, not going to funerals, not, uh, they are like, you know, sort of defriending each other in social media and are not like, and, and I think, you know, were the divisions any bigger in, um, in, in the 1980, I mean, you, you're a 74 baby like me, uh, mm -hmm. like were, were the divisions 1974. In, yeah. 1974. <laughs> uh, were <laughs> the divisions any bigger in the eighties or the nineties or the, the aughts? I don't think so. It's they just weren't. for some, for some reason they've become, um, something that just divides people now. Yeah. Well, there, there's a, that's a deep topic, and that's actually one of the main reasons I became friends with John Haidt 
um, is because I, you know, I saw him on the Colbert Report, I, a guy who had hosted a book party for me, hosted a book party for John. And I realized that there was this dude out there who was kind of had this weird position in the culture war of being, you know, a left of center, but at the same time trying to get people to talk across lines of difference. Um, and, that, and that's John Hyde, of course, in his absolutely amazing book, Righteous Mind and Happiness Hypothesis. Um, and that's how I met him in the first place. And I actually, and this is, this is my whole theory of polarization, um, uh, is essentially, well, first of all, we had an unusual amount of sort of like um, uh, uh, lack of polarization <laughs> um, uh, after the, the Depression, after the um, uh, boom of the 1950s. Uh, Ezra Klein wrote a book um, on polarization um, that I have somewhat mixed feelings about. Um, but because uh, it, it basically is like, we're going to be nonpartisan, but it's the Republicans' fault because they're racists. <laughs> it, it, it is kind of where it, where it goes. But it makes I a good saw, argument I for that being part book. Of it. Yeah. yeah, I, I saw his book. And I just, I find him to be so habitually dishonest that wow. I just, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, read the book. I, I mean, he's yeah, a great, I just, I think he's a, I think he's a really good thinker. And what, what, what always makes me a little bit uncomfortable reading him is he's me if I stayed in San Francisco. Um, if I, if I kept working for the ACLU in San Francisco and I didn't have as much exposure to, to, uh, religious people and conservatives and doing my work in, in higher education, he very specifically says he doesn't really care about, you know, he thinks censorship in high, in, in, in high school and in, in colleges is silly. Um, and I think I would have become him <laughs> if, if I had, um, if I stayed in the, if I stayed in the bubble, um, and that's not the worst thing in the world, uh, it, it, because I do think that it was a valuable contribution to um, uh, his book, Why We're Polarized, actually has a lot of valuable information in there. And one of the things that I think he's correct on is that the realignment in the Southern strategy actually led to a situation where um, the Democrats weren't broken up into Northern and Southern Democrats. Suddenly it was, you know, all revanchist and this kind of stuff. So I don't think he's wrong in a lot of stuff, but his narrative ends in like 1965. <laughs> and it's like, you know, <laughs> things happened after 1965 too, which also pushed people in various directions. Now, my much sort of like more, um, uh, like, I wouldn't say simpler, but kind of like less blamey kind of idea of what happened with polarization is, one, we were unusually um, non-polarized for about 50 years there, particularly because of, uh, think, you know, massive um, uh, disruptions like the Depression and World War II. But there was this theory in the 1970s by this uh, social scientist, Ronald Engelhardt, that gets a lot of coverage because it really should. It's, it's a very important idea. Um, that it's, uh, he talks about the post-materialist society. And essentially what that is, is the, this idea that as technology progresses, you end up in a situation where people don't have to live downtown as much anymore. Um, and so there's greater physical mobility. Um, and you will be able to live in communities that quote unquote reflect your values. And that sounds lovely, you know? Like, it's like, I get, I get, I get to live in communities with my values. And one thing that nobody really saw coming, at least in any, any detail, was the perfect tailoring of media and social media to the people you already like. Now, but there's a problem with this. Um, group polarization, which I think is about as close to a law of human nature as, 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 we've, as we've accomplished, that if you live around people, and, and there's two different ways group polarization works, particularly if you, and, and the law of group polarization is that when you take 12 people, divide them into two groups of six, send them off to talk about a political issue, they will come back more, more radical in the position of the group than they were individually before. And, and you, 
I'm sure you've all seen this, go to a conference and suddenly you're like, you know, just worked up about stuff. Um, And this is happening all over the country with the big sort where people increasingly move, you know, to the countryside. Um, If they're more Republican, um, you know, more liberal leaning people move to the cities. Um, And so it it creates a situation where you're physically, you know, in touch with people you agree with. But then you got social media that just speeds everything up and two, two forces kick in. One, I just call hydraulic. You know, this is Cass Sunstein's argument. You end up with way more arguments on your side. Um, he actually went through the process of counting how many arguments, you know, liberals and conservatives could come up with for their for their positions. And of, unfortunately, there seems to be a correlation between IQ and and the ability to do this, which means uh, people uh, a lot people with higher IQs are better at rationalizing <laughs> the, the, their, their, their position, which is scary yeah, to think that not even smart. So, it's that. so terrifying. Yeah. And so you've got that, but then you've got tribalism that essentially like once you actually, once you have that kind of sense of us versus them, then something even deeper and scarier kicks in. And here's the last point, And this is what got me in trouble on Brett Weinstein's show. Um, because I, I mentioned that, yeah. And Trump sped things up too. And I had, you know, I had these people like freak out at me because they're kind of like, oh, I can't, I couldn't listen to that guy anymore. Oh my God. I can't believe he said that. I'm like, are you really trying to say that you don't think the 2016 election was polarizing? Like, like, seriously, like take, take, take your partisan hat off and like, look at what actually happened. Like the, and and just as a, as a phenomenon, of course we got more polarized after 2016. Um, The, whereas we used to have a president that that had a lot more of an instinct towards being conciliatory, at least in in word, um, that's just completely gone. And so all the forces are pushing us further and further apart to the point at which David French's book, Divided We Fall, um, where he talks about literally the country breaking up, doesn't sound so implausible anymore. Yeah. No, it is, uh, it is quite, quite fascinating. I, I, just to go back to what you said about the, how this maps out spatially, I think that is such an important point that mm-hmm. is not made nearly enough. Um, I've always lived in, in big cities. You know, big where, where do you live now? M- Montreal. Oh, I love Montreal. And, uh, it's a lovely yeah. city. Oh, it's wonderful. But my my mom, a number of years ago, she, uh, after living in Montreal for all of her life, she moved to a small town in uh, in rural Ontario. And she had all of the sort of ideas that, that somebody, you know, like an Ezra Klein or somebody from San Francisco or New York or Montreal or, you know, Brooklyn would have moving to small town oh this is going to be backward this is going to be (laughs) right right, all this stuff and she said actually um what she discovered was really fascinating is because in a small town there's a limited number of people it means that you're actually forced on a daily basis to deal with people who are very different than you Mm -hmm. so you deal with people who are you know like elderly you deal with people that are teenagers, that are kids, that are. You deal with uh, the, the the place where she lived. They had recently got their their first sort of openly gay couple that moved into the town, and they were friends with with everybody, right? And everybody had to get. You had to deal with the with the guy who talks to himself, right? You had to deal with like people with severe, you know, mental health problems, and and so she said, you know, I've actually realized that in a big city you have the possibility of social specialization. You can move to, you can sort of come out and move to the gay village, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can move to the Italian neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Or if you, 
uh, are like, you know, my wife and I, when we had our two young kids, you can just sort of hang out with nothing but couples that have kids, right? And you can, you can, you can specialize, right? Which, um, that's how you create this paradoxical thing where often the most diverse urban centers can have some of the most narrow-minded people in them, right? Because you have uh, the possibility of just um, excluding everybody else. Yeah. Well, and, and that's something that, that, that is really interesting on the polarization research when it comes to the spatial dimension of it. Well, one is increasingly Republicans are low population density er, uh, people. And uh, basically, you, you, the predictive power of the, the population density of where you live as to what party you belong to has, I don't think it's, I'm not sure if it's ever been stronger. Um, but one thing that was, you know, having lived in Carroll Gardens, um, Brooklyn, uh a place that I absolutely adored, but eventually felt priced out of. Um, uh, one really striking thing was how clearly you could see what, you know, a, a controversial uh, uh, author for sure, but who, who does some pretty great research, Charles Murray would point out how increasingly, you know, we live in neighborhoods that are, that are more economically um, segregated, more politically segregated, going block to block. And I was always kind of struck by, since I liked the old neighborhood to a degree, and I kind of liked the old Italian people, despite the fact that they would constantly say things that might curl your toes a little bit if you're not used to it. Um, but there was there was a, a street, essentially, that on one side it was the old Italian uh, guys who, you know, all voted Republican, and the, the, the new, very, very upper class, you know, uh, generation of moms, and they didn't they didn't really interact with each other very much. And it's a shame because I actually think one of the things for depolarization, one of the things that really helps you um, is, you know, it's like, well, you know, Gary's pretty awesome. I mean, I disagree with him on this stuff, but it's helpful to know somebody on the, uh, on the other side. And in a situation where, you know, everything's centralized into a, into a downtown, that's hard to avoid, but now it's, it, 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 you have to seek it out or move to a small town. Yeah. Well, there's okay. I have I have so many questions from listeners that that people wanted to to ask you about. Uh, but is the first one, "How dare you?" <laughs> no, no, no. All, uh, How all, dare you? They, they all love you. They all love you. So, uh, but yeah. the uh, well, we had a, we had a case. Well, we had a case right here in Montreal I, um, recently where um, there was a professor who was talking about. Uh, there's this very, very famous um, Quebecois book, which was essential to sort of the kind of the quiet revolution here and to the kind of the political awakening of Quebecois nationalism and stuff like that. And it's called uh, White N-Words of America uh, in, in French, uh, Negative Blanc d'Amérique. And so this, this communications professor was talking about this book. Now, this is like, you know, as important as, as sort of, uh, you know, MLK's, where do we go from here? Or it, it's, it's, it's very important here in Quebec. And so you, you would just obviously go over it. Lots of people do. And um, she was just talking about it in class. And just because she said uh, the uh, N-word as in the title, there was a petition against her to kind of get rid of her. And it became this big... Uh, kind of scandal, right? And so now, actually, it's led to this um, this pushback, which is causing an even bigger scandal. Where um, recently, there's been a, a petition 
a whole bunch of um, uh, sort of French French academics have signed this uh, declaration on free speech, and it's becoming, um, to some extent, it's becoming kind of a division between uh, French Canadian culture and English Canadian culture, where English Canadian culture has um, academic culture has at least since the 1990s very much kind of followed on the heels of American trends towards uh, political correctness, towards more uh, seriousness and things like that. Whereas um, for the most part, um, French Canadian academics have uh, been much more resistant to a lot of these trends. And so it's, it's created um, a number of times going back to the, the 1990s, there's been this uh, sort of culture clash between these two things. I'm wondering what you think the solution to that is. Oof. Um, wow. Uh, I don't think there is one solution. Fire is trying every solution we possibly can. But one thing I am getting really fed up with is um, universities and people who go to elite colleges not understanding that they are, uh, to use a colloquial term, the man, um, and that they represent power. Because if you hear the way, like, so now that I speak on campuses, I have to, go, I have to do this almost remedial explanation of free, of free speech. And I do this certainly when I speak at high schools and I have to explain, listen, <laughs> in a democracy, um, only minorities need free speech. And what I mean by that is if you have above 50% of the vote, then you get to decide what the society will look like. And in a parliamentary de- democracy, almost, you know, to, almost infinitely. Um, and then, of course, when people say, oh, free speech is the weapon of the powerful and, and the wealthy, I'm like, no, everything is the weapon of the powerful and the wealthy. There's no system in which, except for communism, which the wealthy don't do well, there's no system in which the powerful, by definition, don't do well. Um, so they're always protected. The majority is always protected. You only need free speech to protect minority opinions. But one of the things that it is, and in my opinion, it's harming the entire world is the fact that because American higher education is so ideologically monolithic, but not able to own its own power, the fact that it is this incredibly wealthy institution, that these people are agenda setters for the rest of the world, they've managed to convince a generation of students that free speech is the argument of the, of the majority, of the bully, of what I say, the bully, the bigot, and the banker, which is completely wrong, but it's partially because these people in higher education can't actually own that this is an incredibly powerful institution, and that really what they're asking for is more power for authority to shut down the people they disagree with and so and this is spreading all over the world like the, the, this idea that free speech is actually the weapon of the bully the bigot and the banker is actually you know this is and i think it was um frank ferretti who talked about these ideas um these bad ideas tend to start in california and sort of ripple outwards <laughs> it was kind of yeah. idea. It's not it's not too far from the truth but but it, but that's one of the fundamental things that i you know i'm, I'm really I, I used to be a little bit quieter about this but it, it makes me mad I, I i've been increasingly arguing almost something like a marxist because I'm like, uh, this is what the ruling class thinks we should talk about, but they're not willing to admit that the ruling class are actually explicitly taught that they don't have power when they have the power to change laws and get people kicked out of school. Um, so like th- this, th- this very peculiar self-denial of the, of the ruling class of the United States um, is messing up the entire rest of the world. Uh, and I know that sounds very dramatic, but I, I increasingly am getting frustrated that, 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 uh, that you know, people who went to Harvard, for goodness sakes, can't own that. Yeah. 
Well, it wouldn't be the first time, you know, I mean, that, that bad ideas started off in at Harvard and ended up doing real damage. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, in other parts of the world. I mean, I remember in grad school when I, I found out I was taking Dorothy Ross's seminar and I, I found out for the first time there that um, at Johns Hopkins that the five-year plans that Stalin, um, you know, that just killed millions and millions of people, the five-year plans were originally cooked up by Harvard social scientists and they were really frustrated by the fact that in countries like the United States, uh, United Kingdom, Canada, you had this messy parliamentary democracy, which got in the way of you like implementing these grand master plans that could do all. Yeah. They could do all this great good. And they looked that in these authoritarian countries, you could just, you had like a blank slate and you could just sort of paint whatever you wanted on the canvas and they, you know, in blood, of course, but like yeah. they, they loved it. And, uh, but a lot of those things started off um, in seminars at Ivy League universities. Yeah. Well, and, and preparation to give a, a little bit of a family history here. And one of the reasons why, you know, um, I, I, I take a lot of this stuff so seriously is that, you know, my great grandfather was a serf. He bought his way to freedom in 1858, um, and then we very quickly became judges and professors and landowners. We got we were, were freed from serfdom, and we did really awesome. And uh, and there's a word for serfs who made good, um, uh, coined by uh, I'm not sure if it was Lenin or Stalin, um, kulaks. Um, we were, it, it's a made up word. So that, like when people try to like figure out like whether or not you're, you count as a kulak, it's like, it's not an ethnicity. It's a name for peasants who made good. And we were peasants who made good. Um, my grandfather, not my great grandfather was studying in Kiev Polytechnic, um, it, right at the outbreak of world war one. My, my, my father's very old. Um, my grandfather was born in 1888. Um, wow. And he, uh, you know, and so uh, we we lost against the Germans um, and and had to retreat back, and then we lost against the Bolsheviks and and had to and had to uh, had to retreat out. And finding out that Americans were sending money to Amer- Americans in, in in New York City, you know, not too far from neighborhoods I lived in, were sending money to to people like um, like, like Trotsky and and Lenin at the beginning is just absolutely horrifying. And then I get you know, so I, I'm raised with all this all. With a, with a first generation kid's kind of esteem for America, coming with the understanding of what the other systems are like, and constantly, I, I, my entire life, I feel like people have been talking down to me about like you don't really understand the United States. We're actually this thing, and I'm like, no, I'm a first generation kid, and all my stories are about in the uh, about what happened in the old country. I think you don't understand this country. Um, and it, it, so it, it, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, um, I came to free speech because my mother is British and my father is Russian. Um, my father believes you should be cuttingly sharp. Like you should be so honest. It, it, it's hurtful, you know, like basically like there, there, there's a very big emphasis on total brutal honesty. Whereas my mother is ethnically Irish, grew up in Britain, wanted to be more like the Brits. So she had this really heavy emphasis on politeness. And I grew up in a neighborhood with kids from Vietnam, kids from Peru, kids from uh, Puerto Rico, uh, kids from, you know, from Korea, from from all over the place. And you couldn't decide on a rule. Uh, basically, if you decided that everybody's mom got to ban whatever speech they thought was taboo in the old country, nobody would be allowed to say anything. So in a genuinely multicultural environment, what rule did we establish? Free speech. 
And so as I move up kind of like the class, you know, the, 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 the class totem pole, because at this point, you know, my dad, my dad started working again regularly when I was like 10 or 11. And then we, our, our, our situation improved a lot, but you know, I didn't, I didn't know we were actually that bad off in the first place. Um, but you know, I, I get to a place like, like Stanford law school and it's, it was so incredibly parochial. There, there was just this sense that kind of like the norms of the incredibly wealthy, affluent, overeducated Bay area were the norms that the entire rest of the world should adopt. And I was like, that just, don't you see what you sound like? You sound like the Victorians you're making fun of. You see, you, you sound like a ruling class that's out of touch, but wants everybody to be like them. And I, I, unfortunately, you know, like the experience that I had having these arguments, you know, it, it, uh, in San Francisco back when I was interning at the ACLU, it, is that this has kind of taken over the world. This style of argumentation that, that goes nowhere, but it's about, I call it the perfect rhetorical fortress, that essentially like the rules are so, uh, they're rule upon rule upon rule upon rule about, uh, that are based in ad hominems, that you, you don't ever have to get to the substance of what someone's actually arguing. You can always decide miss them. Now, to be clear, I think conservatives have a rhetorical fortress too, which means you don't have to listen to experts, the media, or uh, people who disagree, you know, or, or liberals in general, which actually eliminates a tremendous amount of information, you should, some of which you should probably be listening to. But it's been, it, it's been really frustrating. And I think it's, it's it, and I'm watching it explode over the last, you know, since, since about 2014. It's one of the great disappointments of my life. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I often, talk about you know, in my introduction to epistemology classes Ooh. i'll tell students this this famous thing that it's like one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen so there was a, a guy who was going around um there were a bunch of them you probably heard about this back in the day but there were these evangelical um traveling pastors and you know, evangelists who would go around and they would challenge evolutionary biologists to public debates on the issue of like creationism versus evolution and things like that. And so there was one of them who was uh, coming in town here and he challenged uh, a couple of the uh, biologists at, at McGill and Concordia to, to a public debate. And one of them, one of them at Concordia said yes. So they, uh, they had this, they had this debate set up. All sorts of people showed up. I went there. I was in undergrad at the time. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. So the, the evolutionary biologist, he got up and he said, okay, um, now before we have this debate, I just want to make a couple things perfectly clear. Um, I, I find the theory of evolution by natural selection uh, very, very convincing for a number of reasons. However, uh, here are a number of things that we could learn in the next, you know, couple of years, let's say, which would cause me to completely reject that theory. Um, and so, and he listed off, and he wasn't like fucking around. Like he was, he was actually being like legit. He, he, he wasn't. I guess I'm saying he wasn't being like like cute or facetious. He was pointing to actual discoveries that could be made, which would uh, cause him to rethink uh, and possibly just like reject. So after going through this list of things, he then said to this, uh, to this fundamentalist Christian, he said, is there any new information that you could learn in the next uh, couple of years or the next, is there any new information you could receive that would lead you um, to reconsider your 
belief uh, in creationism. And the guy squirmed and squirmed and squirmed. And suddenly his like perfect chiclet teeth smile did not look so, you know, like for day, he was like, you know, in this like three piece suit and perfect slicked hair and everything. And he like, he suddenly was squirming and trying to avoid the question. And then he finally just, uh, you know, just said no. And then the guy just heard the professor said, well, then this isn't a real academic debate. It's a faith. Because this is in a university, uh, a true, an academic debate. Uh, there has to, you have to at least theoretically be committed to the possibility that, that you might be wrong and that you could change your mind. So this is not, this, this discussion has no place in a university. And he walked off the stage. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But the thing is, is what horrifies me is increasingly people on the left and the right sound like that Pentecostal pastor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's something that I talked with Height about. You know, like, um, you know, it, are, do we think these ideas are, are uh, similar to religion, or really truly taking the place of religion? And and he he's like, no, I really think that this instinct is um, is being activated. And and the thing, I, so on eternally radical idea, the the, uh, the the blog, I've been trying to do what I call a modular argument for free speech, um, and I mean just have a blog, you know, every couple of weeks that talks about a particular term in free speech that either you know is idiosyncratic to me or something that I think uh, someone else came up with, but I think the whole world should know about. And one of uh, one of my idiosyncratic terms is censorship gravity. Um, essentially, as if censorship was this neutron star, you know, just with this massive gravity pulling things in, um, because that's normal. Like, uh, and what I mean is historically normal. Closed societies are normal. Tribalism is normal. Superstition is normal. Religion is normal. Um, all of these things are are kind of more our steady state. I and mean, when I talk about this stuff on campuses, I'm kind of like, so what? What traditionally do human beings do with dissenters? Okay. We um, make them drink hemlock, we burn them at the stake, we crucify them. Um, If we're feeling very nice, we simply kick them out of our society or just intimidate them into into pretending they believe what we do. Like that is really most of human history is the way uh, people behave. Like periods of comparative tolerance are are, are generally considered golden ages. Um, And so what we're doing and why the blog is called the eternally radical idea is because for one thing, it was an incredible societal innovation to, to have tolerance, which, and tolerance, you have to understand that means not liking somebody, but letting them mind their own business and and live, live and let live. That's, that's impressive. What's even more radical is what if we listen to them? What if we hear what they're, and even, and, and listen to them over my kin? I'm going to listen to this over my brother. I'm going to, this, this jerk on the street is going to convince me that I might be wrong on stuff. It's really difficult for human beings. It's very hard to maintain. Um, and because we don't appreciate that, because we take all of this stuff for granted, we're just sliding backwards, pulled by a censorship gravity into this sort of uh, uh, quasi-religious, um, uh, semi-tribal like uh, tribal society. And this is happening both on the left and the right, partially because nobody knows how to, uh, nobody does a good job of actually explaining to people in the first place that this system uh, uh, that we've created, that Jonathan Rauch calls liberal science, is actually very hard to maintain. It goes against human nature and it requires norms and discipline and commitment. Yeah. I mean, what would you say to though? this is sort of, a, I'm kind of paraphrasing one of the questions that a, a listener sent to me, but what would you say to people who say that what we call free speech or liberty has 
has always been something that existed in the sort of as a function of certain kinds of balance of power, mm-hmm. right? That uh, that you, Martin Luther is allowed to speak what he wants because, um, to some extent, it serves the interests of the German princes who are sick of the the Catholic Church in Rome meddling in their political affairs and and collecting taxes from them and things like that. So they they let him speak. Right. And then in the, uh, you know, maybe like during the, the height of the Cold War, mm-hmm. um, the, um, the the United States allows uh, certain kinds of, you know, radicals to say what they want to sort of to show to the Soviet Union that, oh, look, we're we're better than you. We have a, we're the leader of the free world and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the. And then, I mean, you can just, you know, Edward Snowden is living in Putin's Russia right now. Like, that basically people, uh, freedom is almost always uh, propped up by the powers that be for certain kinds of cynical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that's, just, I don't think that's really true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I don't really know how exactly to respond to that. Um, when you look at kind of the places, so uh, big step back and, and another another plug of something that's very dear to my heart. Um, Fire sponsored a, um, a podcast series called Clear and Present Danger, uh, hosted by this guy, Jakob Mishingama, whose father was and was ar- actually arrested for being an enemy of the state in, in Africa, which really kind of radicalized him towards free speech. And what he, what Jakob does so well there is he explains that free speech is all of human history. It's always an issue, um, whether you knew it or not. Um, and he and this wonderful series, incredibly entertaining. Um, and he's writing a book about it now. And I really, you know, I come from a fairly global perspective, so I wanted to make sure that, that people understood that. However, when you look at the different models of free speech, you know, like some of the main models you're talking about are, you know, Holland, Britain, particularly Scotland, uh, the United States, and to a lesser extent, places like France. And this was actually partially productive, not by... The, produced not by power, but the inability to conquer all of Europe. Um, and this is a long theory of open societies and free speech, but I can say it pretty quickly. Um, looking at the world in 1500, the society that should have won, uh, just should, should have been the global hegemon, is of course China. The next best candidate would be basically the the, the Islamic world. Um, China turned inward very specific on a very specific year. I think it was 14 th- or around 1434. Essentially, there was this great kind of like, okay, the, this engagement with the world has been terrible. We're 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 turning we're turning inward. Or anyway, um, about 500 years ago. And there was this turning inwards. Uh, the I, I honestly think that given the things that were happening in China at that point, you could have seen an industrial uh, um, revolution within a hundred years of, of that point if they'd kept on, you know, learning all these other things from from the barbarians, um, which is all the rest of us. Um, the Islamic world was more fractured, but there was definitely a wonderful um, period of the philosophers, the, the philosophers, you know, incredible advances in science and, and medicine and math. Um, but then there was a, there was a religious sort of revivalism, which, which happens time and time again in, in society. The fact that no single entity could conquer all of Europe, partially, I think, 
partially for geographic reasons. It uh, w- was one of the reasons why you accidentally fell into the idea that, wow, free speech actually has real benefits. Because these societies that could not be in, in entirely tamed and were in constantly struggled against themselves started to realize that letting people talk, letting people e- examine stuff actually did have an advantage. But it's interesting that it actually came from, in my opinion, a lack of ability to control everybody and uh, suddenly realizing that, hey, we stumbled into this thing and, and it, it actually it produces scientific ideas. It, it produces literature that makes us attractive to the rest of the world. It, they started realizing that, that, that open societies, um, if, whether you wanted them or not, and mostly in, in human instinct was to not want them, um, tr- produce tremendous uh, benefits. And I think that's kind of what happened, uh, happened in the United States as well. So I do actually think um, it comes from a lack of power being turned into a virtue um, that goes against our ability to conquer and homogenize as, as unfortunately I think is so um, so deeply embedded in the human heart. Um, so I, I really, my whole model of history is different. I, I, I see open societies and, and freedom as something that was almost accidentally um, stumbled into, but then re- then we realize this thing has tremendous power. It, it releases all sorts of creativity, all sorts of genius that we didn't actually know was like right in front of us if we just apply some simple rules. But because of that, it's incredibly fragile. Yeah. No, I I... I... I tend to actually agree with you on all this stuff. I'm just sort of trying to like play devil's advocate because there's a couple of a couple of the questions. I'm surely not offended. Yeah. 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 Uh, but one uh, of them is to go hopefully back you can to tell I'm having fun with this. Uh, oh, no, got, I know. I know. I, know. Funny, like, I think my 2019 was so hard and I, and I've always been so careful. Um, and I, I always emphasize to my staff message discipline and all this kind of stuff. And I think that the last couple of years have been so nuts. I'm like, ah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to explain everything. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, t- t- 2019 having what you, you had cancer, you had a car accident and a death in the family. That's a horrible year. And that was just three of the things it was the, the, the tumor was non-metastatic, um, which is good. Um, but uh, yeah, it required a, a pretty, pretty nasty surgery, which I also, you know, wrote about when I learned about it, but yeah, car accident, head injury had me really messed up. My wife got it too. You know, I also have a two and a four year old in, in all this. Um, and the, the good news, though, is that after getting through 2019, um, 2020 and the pandemic felt like a piece of cake. Yeah, I, I actually, I mean, it's a long story how I ended up there, but I ended up having to volunteer when I was uh, in my late teens. I got into trouble with the, the police a lot. But anyway, but I, I, I ended up, at one point, I had to do some, uh, some community service. And I did some of my community service at this old folks home uh, called the Moffat Home in Verdun. And, uh, my my neighborhood and I, I remember being struck by how these these little old ladies who were like 90 something and they had kind of you know they'd been through all sorts of they'd lost like a lot of their friends and family and their husband had been dead for 25 years and they'd gone through and these old ladies they just didn't give a fuck and they were so free in their the way they would speak and they they would just uh, because they were at the point where they were like, you know, life, you, you can't take anything away from me. <laughs> I'm just going to speak my mind. And they would just, they were so entertaining to talk to. So, I mean, and very often in like very repressive regimes, the people who end up being the ones that speak truth to power are are people who've kind of gone through horrible I mean, we saw this recently in China with the coronavirus, you know, where people were so mad about 
the government's handling of it, that even as dangerous as it is, they were speaking out in social media and just, you know, going crazy. But uh, anyway, just to, to go back to something you said before about how like these open societies emerge because there's um, nobody can totally take control. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, the cynics view of, uh, of sort of freedom and the open society is to say that it's basically just a truce that as, as long as you have kind of a, a balance of power um, and you have different groups um, within either a nation state or a city or an academic department or a university or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. as long as you have kind of a balance of power, they will sort of decide to sort of uh, have this freedom and the open society, but it's not, they're not doing it for principled reasons. It's just because they don't want the other guy to, to be running. But as soon as one group gains the upper hand and becomes the majority, uh, they will sort of just uh, get rid of all that stuff. I would say that there's a strong tendency towards that. Um, but one of the things that for all, and this is the, to the eternal frustration of academics and particularly that evil, evil man, Plato, um, the, the totalizing of the world, the, the simplifying of the world into any, any theory that can be uh, quickly stated cannot cope well with the diversity of the world. And what I mean by that, and this is something that look, when, when you talk about, you know, why communism, uh, why a lot of these utopian systems can't work, it's partially because people value different things at different levels and for different reasons. And you can either think of that as an obstacle or you can think of that as great. Now, in a world where the cynics, you know, run everything, then yeah, it's just it, it's just a war of all versus all. But there are people who actually enjoy living in the system of, well, I mind your business, you, um, uh, you mind yours, you know. They, you have to be. You have to have experience with it first, or maybe you know, maybe it's a natural inclination. But there are all different sorts of reasons for people: one, wanting to you know live and let live and be left alone, um, just a lack of of interest at all uh, in a just a, a deep introversion. You know, religious ideas that actually um, emphasize human flourishing, um, religious ideas that are very about very much about your own individual um, struggle. And and so you can actually have, um, I think, a, a, a pluralistic society uh, as long as there are people who value that for its own sake. Um, once, however, the cynics, you know, have uh, are, have enough numbers and they want to actually win the war, um, you know, actually take over everything. That's when you get, you know, you might end up having a, you know, having a civil war. And that sounded like a joke to me five years ago but like i said david french's book it was my it, <laughs> i just i've been having some fun with, with my blog and I, I i i named my book award the prestigious asher bonable award um <laughs> but, but it's just my book of the month award <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and i gave it to a uh, divided we fall um uh, uh, by by David French, which is about you know civil war, which I mentioned before. This month, I'm probably going to give it to Fareed Zakaria's book on um, you know ten things that we learned from the pandemic. Which and it's funny because one is about what uh, Fareed Zakaria's book points to federalism as a problem, whereas David French thinks it's the solution that essentially like we should be okay with having you know more autonomous. Texas and California, if they're going to be that different from each other, let them be that different might, might, might actually be the answer. Um, but yeah, there, there is a, there is a cynicism. Um, and I think unfortunately to a degree comes from academia, um, uh, that it's just a battle of all versus all. And there is no, there is no, um, calculation other than rationality. Now, of course, that's 
also the theme of my all-time favorite book, um, Crime and Punishment, where Raskolnikov is introduced to the idea that actually my simple moral calculation um, runs into very real human uh, uh, human impediments within myself, but also societally. Um, so you know, I, I do think that this is one of the problems of, of academia is that left to its own devices without exposure to the real world or without valuing the real world, it tends towards the platonic. And what I mean by platonic is totalitarianism. Um, and, yeah. and, and this is and this is how much I hate Plato. Like uh, it was so it was so much fun to read um, Karl Popper. I was just oh, jumping the up open, and down. The open society. I was just jumping up and down. I'm like, I thank you, it. someone said it. Yeah. <laughs> you know that this guy wants he 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 really wants this society, and it's not a coincidence that the people he thinks should be uh, should be in charge are him or people like him. And but th- then he kind of bashes Aristotle a little bit for being kind of like parochial or conventional, and I'm like, well, actually, Aristotle. It's kind of funny to watch your heart kind of go around for the ones you like. He totally blasts Hegel, which he thinks Hegel's a charlatan. I'm like, yes, someone finally said it. Yeah. And I don't really understand why he spent so much time explaining why he likes Marx, but um, but disagrees with him. But he spends a huge amount of time talking about like basically, oh, Marx is a good guy, um, but at the same time, really disagreeing with him. Yeah. So I think there's a strong totalitarian um, impulse at the heart of a lot of of um, academic inquiry. The idea that like one person can come up with the solution for all people, and it's a very dangerous impulse um, that has to be called out when it's there. Yeah. I wonder if, uh, speaking of sort of cynical perspectives, the, uh, one of the questions that I, I got was from uh, uh, my friend Aaron Haspel, uh, who's a big fan of uh, the work that you do uh, with fire. Um, but he said, um, I would like to know uh, why Greg thinks there's any hope for higher education at all. Uh, and wouldn't he rather just blow it up than prolong it to death throes? <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, I used to, uh, and by used to, I mean only maybe two years ago, have, because um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I hear from conservatives in particular, just this incredible cynicism about higher education. And I hear it, but I also am like, have you done the following five things? Like you can, you can only complain to me unless you actually told your alma mater or alma maters that you're not donating any, any money anymore unless or until you uh, get rid of your speech codes, um, protect your students and faculty when, when those things and, and do it early and often adopt a new academic freedom statement like the Chicago statement or the Chicago statement, um, have an orientation run by faculty that explains the deep philosophy behind the actual project of human knowledge that you're supposed to be about because we can't blame them for uh, not understanding it if they, if they've never, nobody's actually ever told it to them for goodness sakes. I don't think anybody has. Um, and the final one is do internal surveys to figure out, um, you know, are people really comfortable uh, doing devil's advocacy, thought experimentation, talking across lines, lines of difference. We actually, just did our, uh, a survey of our own and you know unsurprisingly some of the findings were a little bit uh, troublesome but i recently added i mean recently as in like two months ago a six uh condition also let's look into um alternatives because as long because one thing that conservatives have to accept um is that princeton stanford harvard uh yale maybe even yale are going to be around for 
ever, <laughs> or at least as far as, you know, <laughs> in, uh, until the robots take over. Um, and that they're still going to have a disproportionate influence uh, about who the ruling class actually is for at least 50 years to come. So you, you can't, for your own sense of pr- self-preservation, give up on these incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful institutions who convince their students that they are neither wealthy nor powerful. But you can't, you, you, you cannot give up on them. Um, you have to keep fighting, even if all fire achieves is that more dissenters are able to graduate from those schools and more dissenting professors are able to survive, that's, that's, doing quite a, that's doing quite a bit. However, as long as these institutions have a monopoly in their opinion on whether or not your children will end up in the upper class, in the ruling class, um, and uh, as Americans are, are rightfully scared that their kids could fall down into the middle or lower classes because it's not it's no longer that all that great to be middle class in the United States. It's actually pretty rough. Um, so the, 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 the tension is real. And I'm actually, this is the next thing I'm writing about. This is the very next piece of catching up with, uh, catching up with Colleen that I'm writing. But what we need are some creative systems that don't just focus on the middle tier schools or the lower tier schools. We need something that could actually pull off that, that could give at least a little bit of competitive uh, sense of competition uh, of of not being the only game in town that could actually get some of these top students away from the Harvard, from the Yales, from the Stanford's. And I've been giving that a lot of thought, like what a system like that could look at. And even just a little crack in the facade of you can actually, there's actually like, for example, like a national competition for like a two-year baccalaureate that's like, you know, covered as if it's the Olympics, um, that it has super signaling, you know, that it's very rigorous, that you, that, that it promises to employees that anybody who got out of this system is a badass, you know, like someone who can write, who can think. Because, you know, as a, and I'm thinking this like from an employer standpoint, the reason why I sometimes do favor people from the fancy schools is because it means at least you're probably pretty self-disciplined pretty television. You're conventional enough to actually, you know, you're, you're uh, to, to get through uh, uh, school and you probably came in pretty bright. Um, and that's, it's such a bad it maps so poorly on, on how good someone actually is because, you know, frankly, a lot of higher education is not all that rigorous. I don't even know if someone graduating from some of these fancy schools has uh, understands statistics or world history or anything about law. So I think that if there were more competitive pressure on American higher education, and once you're charging $70,000 a year for, for a year and then claiming it costs, that's only covers half of your cost, which is insane. It's like, you, you're really telling me you can't educate a single student for a year for less than $140,000 is an insane argument that, that you need some, uh, some competition with higher education. Um, and I think that if there was any meaningful uh, competition, um, some of the problems that I see would start being fixed very quickly because universities would, would start realizing, you know, may, maybe the, the, the gravy train uh, is up. So, yeah, basically at the same time defending the need to, to defend higher education, but yes, I would like some radical transformation. But you're kidding yourself if you think that these institutions aren't going to be around for a long, long time. Yeah. Well, you talk about this in The Coddling of the American Mind. But I, I wanted to sort of just ask you about, because this is something which I feel like is a, a major, major, major threat to freedom on campus that I see at where I teach and that I see a lot of my colleagues are dealing with this, is because you have this increasing spike in um, depression and anxiety and mental health problems among the, the younger generation that I'm seeing in my, like when I started teaching, I would say uh, when I would do kind of anonymous 
uh, polls and classes and I asked students just to get a, you know, cause I often will ask them a bunch of questions and they'll answer anonymously. And then I will, um, bringing up the stuff like in class, the, the sort of the stats on the class. And it's often very shocking to the students because the new, students who think they are exceptional find out that they're actually, you know, part of the majority and, and yeah. or, or, you know, all sorts of things. Like for instance, the funniest one is always if you asked uh, a group of uh, 17, 18 year olds, um, you know, are you a, a virgin or not? Right. And like it, all the ones that answered yes, think that they're the one student in the class and they're usually like it's usually over half the class are answering yes <laughs> wow um but but that's you know you guys talked about that in your book as well that uh, this generation is having they, they drink less they date less they have sex less they you know yeah. everything but they're, grow- but they're anyway. growing up more more slowly and it actually has some profound and and, and actually that that could be a lovely thing particularly as uh, as life expectancies um, you know, continue to rise. Um, but the fear there uh, is that, and this is something that Eric Posner has been our, uh, uh, the, the, the son of the famous jurist, uh, um, uh, Judge Posner, um, who, who teaches at University, uh, University of Chicago, you know, um, would argue uh, that essentially students um, are not very mature anymore. So therefore we need to bring the the free speech uh, of a higher education down to their level. And it's like, but this is an institution that's supposed to be figuring out what's true in the world. Like the, the American higher education is influential, incredibly influential in the United States, but it's also influential globally. And the idea that we would, you know, put a thumb on the scale of uh, academic freedom in order to, uh, to make sure that the, the, the youngest people in there feel comfortable is it. It sounds insane to me. And the better thing to do, honestly, would be to have, you know, an increased role for junior colleges or separate the, um, you know, the graduate schools from from the undergraduate in a more dramatic way. If that's if that's really what's happening, it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, in the book we ended up surprising ourselves by being becoming very strong advocates of of working gap years. That essentially, if students, um, one way you could address the the, the, the maturity issue um, and and the um, the issue of, of the lack of a locus of self, of control, a lack of self-efficacy, which, of course, if you don't really feel like you're competent beyond your academic um, your, your, your academic abilities, you know, it can be very depressing and, and anxiety-causing to suddenly be, you know, thrown into an environment where you don't have the same kind of, you know, supervision and that kind of stuff. But one way to break that is to have someone, listen, we're, we're going to favor people, you know, uh, applying to Harvard who spend a year working a real job or going and volunteering in some part of the world and doing something actually challenging. Now, unfortunately, the type of people in my experience who have done that, who actually come from, you know, what was once called non-traditional backgrounds, you know, either whether serving the military or going and working in refugee camps or, or whatever, um, one of the reasons why higher education might not want them is because they tend to be unruly. Unruly in the sense that they, they're, they're not as compliant. Um, and I love them, the students coming in to be less compliant and less easily led. Um, but there's a strong higher education interest in having people who, you know, um, uh, ha- have uh, deference and a respect for authority in a, in a wildly bureaucratized uh, system. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I, my issue is like, because you have more and more students that have these, these mental health problems, then uh, that sort of goes hand in hand 
with a lot of this crackdown on certain kinds of speech and class because because what they do is they say uh, your language is doing is violence your language is doing harm and you are and so for instance i've heard this uh you know one colleague of mine who teaches in the english department like she was saying how uh when she was just questioning in a in a particular class about like she thought that uh, it was it, it was a very very kind of benign thing. She was saying that she really thought that we should think twice uh, before we kind of medicate boys heavily for ADHD, oh yeah. and that uh, and that um, and and she also said at another point uh, that she thought uh, that we should really uh, have a long conversation about. Uh, whether it's good to give hormone uh, puberty blockers to kids who are experiencing gender dysphoria. That is the most quickly d- constructed taboo I've ha- ever had of experience with. That going from something that people would have taken for granted saying in 2012, by 2016, it was something that could get you canceled. Yeah, and she was, they were, people were accusing her of the most crazy things. Like they were saying, uh, you're basically saying you don't want uh, trans people to exist. And she's like, mm-hmm. what? How yeah. did you hear Hitler's final solution and what I just said? Yeah. Like, all I said is that I don't think we should be heavily medicating children. Um, I, I think that's like, you know, especially with stuff that's very new and is not very well tested yeah. and it could have long-term consequences, you know, going decades forward. Like mm-hmm. it's usually not a good idea to run these uh, very powerful experiments on children in real time. <laughs> like it's just, <laughs> I would um, say. And she got in so much. And, but the, the thing that was interesting is the pushback was at least to to my ears as a 46 year old guy it was a new kind of pushback it wasn't uh, a pushback of a kind of um, of an obviously religious or political nature or at least like the way it was new it was it was done in the language of safetyism mm-hmm. that that you are that basically equivalent to you are yelling uh, fire in in a crowded movie theater mm-hmm. Like, yeah, how do you how do we get around that, or is that even possible to get around at this point? I I think that we're we're this is kind of has as a tendency of and you know like it was interesting because this happens so quickly on the heels of Obergefell that essentially after years of those of us who wanted gay marriage to be protected, um, it was as if uh, we won that battle and then suddenly we moved on to something that uh, people on campus thought that people wouldn't be able to accept they, 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 there was like a desire to sort of call american society out on you know it's probably just because it had to be there this is part of the system it had to be something very strong and it's amazing how quickly after you know going from having most of the american population opposed gay marriage as recently as i think 2010 to having it be the law of the land and then celebrated as the law of the land it was an incredible transformation and it was as if we there was no time to be like oh great we made some progress here it had to move on to to, to something that sort of pushed the envelope kind of as much as possible with no time for introspection no time for people to be accepted if they're kind of like well actually i'm a little skeptical that uh, on all these assumptions that i'm particularly worried about anything that involves um medication or uh surgery for for young people and and that becoming a taboo 
um, I've never seen anything like it in my life. And it is so strong um, uh, on, on campus that it's frankly, you know, um, uh, kind of scary. And I, and I think that, um, I think that one thing that you can rely on is the fact that generations, um, uh, tend to, uh, be very different from each other. And that if you have a very highly moralistic generation, it might be followed by one that thinks that's ridiculous. So there's hope there in the natural kind of give and take of generational uh, back and forth. But I do think that in the meantime, you know, given this sort of like um, uh, this power kind of this powerful kind of fervor around so many different issues and, and a sense of the world is evil and needs and, and that basically you are always both the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, is something that is, you know, that's showing up uh, at businesses at the moment. And, and you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many people, I literally can't tell you how many people come up to me in height and say, listen, we, we're hiring from some of these elite schools and my organization that does, you know, direct services for poor people or helps the homeless or whatever is paralyzed by the fact that um, every sort of negative personal interaction in my organization has now become something that essentially shuts down the organization for, you know, a couple of days and goes immediately to human resources. Um, what that could lead to, which might not be the worst thing in the world, is schools saying, listen, we're going to put a moratorium on hiring people from elite schools. We're going to hire more from state schools. I think that would get universities to, 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 to rethink um, if they're training people in ideology as opposed to ways of thinking. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, the thing that gives me hope is that my, you know, and I always come back to this, is my father was born in 1926 in Yugoslavia. His dad then died when he was six. Um, you cannot convince me the world has not improved since then. And I also know full well, there was plenty of moral fervor. There was murderous moral fervor that he, he, he escaped and then ran into, you know, on, on both sides, you know, uh, for a substantial part of the, um, you know, whole European continent. There was one murderous regime on one side and another crazy murderous regime on, uh, on the other. Um, so we've been in worse places before and that, and that a lot, and these very same problems about hot ideology and taboos and religiosity, they've always been part of the American. American, um, uh, uh, not the American, the, 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 the world experience. Um, and I still prefer to be in 2020 than almost any other year previously, maybe 1997. That was a pretty great year. But anyway, um, the, that, that I would rather, you know, uh, uh, be here. But when I look at some of these sort of like dysfunctional things coming out of um, uh, ideologies that kind of come out of higher education, it does it it does concern me. It does make me sad. I, I'm like, when I, I I'm I'm surely going to be canceled at some point. You know, like I know I have friends who go through it. You know, where it's it, it and it and the and the thing that's funny is like the the and this is you know I'm very open about the fact that I was hospitalized because I wanted to kill myself back in 2007, and I will say flat out, a huge part of that was the culture war um, because. Once you're considered not 100% an ally in that thing, you're of questionable moral um, worth after that. And I'm not a conservative, so I didn't fit in with the conservatives, um, but I was a heretic on, on my side. And the isolation of that was very powerful. I mean, a conservative, you know, that, that I know, Mike Adams, after being canceled this summer, he was a, he was a you know, a, a, in my, 
by all looks, a super self-confident, uh, very like uh, uh, um, uh, uh, irreverent social conservative, he, sh- he killed himself over the summer um, after being canceled at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And this is a guy I'd known for 20 years. I mean, he, he actually attributed to me his kind of in-your-face conservative style uh, because I told him about, I was reading Lenny Bruce during a case that I was uh, working with him on in 2001. He killed himself. Um, I know a lot of people who are, who are in this field who have been hospitalized. Um, it's, it, it's so psychologically draining because you're not fighting something that can be uh, that can be reasoned with, and the idea that some of this is coming out of a place that actually should be teaching you one in the grand scheme of things, like when you come in the door at higher education, the first thing they should teach you is you know basically nothing um, in, in the grand scheme of things. And I want to be clear here: I know basically nothing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Here, you know, um, and and that that can feel feel terrifying. It can also feel incredibly freeing. But it's your, the idea of higher education is radical open-mindedness, uh, devil's advocacy, thought experimentation. Always remember your epistemic humility. Um, uh, and it's a very radical way to see the world. And unfortunately, I think a lot of institutions have given up on this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, what you say is, is so true. And what's fascinating is that um, in really polarized times, the more the more sort of open the more committed you are to the open society and the more moderate you are the more kind of the more you basically become um, kind of persona non grata because nobody trusts you yeah nobody side no side trusts you right so the i've seen this even even in people who are supposedly committed to liberty like libertarians Libertarian circles can be incredibly catty Absolutely and very why sort I'm of not a like libertarian is because yeah. like, I will not take your freaking purity tests and and I yeah. say this sometimes to fr- friends I have who are libertarians they're like oh come on Greg like we're not that bad I'm like you're not that bad <laughs> yeah but they they really can they can be just it's uh, you know but I when I was growing up I don't know if you had where you grew up but I, I grew up with a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh-huh. Right. And, uh, and they had this, this thing. I mean, it's not exclusive to them. There's other religious minorities that do this, but they had this thing called shunning, which was a very powerful oh, yeah. uh, t- tool of social control. And it happened to a couple of my, a couple of my friends when I was growing up, it was absolutely disgusting. Like they would, if you were basically in violation of the kingdom hall, which is sort of their church, right? The, the church community, they would first kind of censor you. Uh, you'd get like, you know, a couple of warnings from the elders. And then if you didn't, uh, if you didn't like repent and, and change your ways, um, they would, they could shun you. And if they shunned you, then basically uh, not only were you forbidden from taking part in any, uh, services, but they would tell every member of your family that they're not allowed. So I had friends who, uh, who they could not call their own mother. Their own mother would hang up on them. Oh if they God. went to the door, the, the parents would like smash the door. And there were people who committed suicide, who ended up in the, the Douglas Hospital, which is a mental health hospital. And I remember they, the Montreal Gazette had a, a whole series of articles when I was like a teenager on this shunning uh, procedure and how it, it led to suicides it led to, and how it was, uh, it was just this incredibly powerful 
damaging tool for social control. And what's amazing to me is increasingly all sorts of political groups are adopting this tool of social control that used to be used only by cults and kind of these really extreme religious minorities. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it there was, um, and I, I've seen uh, things like this and probably the, the one that rings the most true is um, uh, uh a lot of people don't know this, but do you remember the videos of Nicholas Christakis being bowled out at, at, at Yale? They're horrifying. Yeah, yeah I, t- I took those videos. Um, you I did? Was, yep, that was me. Um, oh, wow. And, and it's he's, a long he's story. Been a, he's, been, he's been on the podcast, actually. Oh, Nicholas is amazing. He's one of the smartest yeah. people on the freaking planet. Like, uh, yeah. the, like and really just, uh, st- but stunningly decent person. Um, both him mm-hmm. and his wife and, and the people I've known for some time. They had me up to speak to, uh, speak to their students when I was at Harvard. And coincidentally, I was invited to be, and I mean, and this has actually led to conspiracy theories and, you know, like um, 10,000, uh, multiple 10,000 word pieces in alternate by Jim Sleeper, you know, about like how evil I am and how this must have been part of like some kind of plan. Um, But it was just a coincidence that I was there during the whole Halloween um, uh, costume incident. And I was watching Nicholas, you know, um, surrounded by angry students and, and, and the, and the students, you know, one, they were, they were, they were really ganging up on him, but they're also being really insulting. Like, like, like there, there was like the idea that he could keep his composure and all of that was just amazing to me. And he was out there to defend his, his wife, um, who had said stuff, um, from a, that, from a understanding her, her, her academic discipline from a developmental psychology standpoint was completely correct. Um, and so he, he's defending, defending and I, I videotaped it, but I wasn't planning to share that with the world. I just wanted to make sure having worked at that point in free speech for an uh, academic freedom for 15 years that I knew that if there was a, he said, she said between a, bu- a bunch of students and a professor, this, um, particularly in that political climate, those students were going to win and, and, and Nicholas was going to be gone. Um, and what may, finally made me really like decide 100% that I needed to publish that th- those um, videos was I was at an event. I was there to give a speech. I gave the speech. It was really tense that night, but you know I think we did a pretty good job. Um, and uh, there was a guy, there was a guy um, who it remains anonymous, and I think he'd prefer it that way. And I don't actually remember his name, so it's perfect anonymity. Um, who told me it's like, listen, I work for the Daily News, Yale Daily News, and the student newspaper, and they're going to. They were there videotaping. They actually had a big camera for the whole thing. And they are going to uh, take, they're going to edit the film and they're going to try to make Nicholas look as bad as possible. And I was just like, what? And I'm a former student journalist myself. So this was, I mean, I was really, I think everybody should be furious at the handling of the Yale Daily News of this whole incident because they videotaped the whole thing and then wouldn't release it to show what actually happened, even though there are all sorts of questions about what happened. Um, I thought they acted very shamefully. But because of that, I, I published these, these videos and I was very careful not to reveal, you know, you know, the names of, of the students involved, but people had to see for themselves what, what, what actually happened in that case. And it was even worse. What was really going on? People asked uh, Erica and Nicholas's son to sign a denunciation of his mother. Oh my God. And it's just like, and, and if you, and, and understand, understand, I want to really emphasize this. Nicholas and Eric Erstakis are two of the kindest, most saintly people I have ever met in my life in terms of like what they actually do in the real world, like the number of people they actually help in the real world, the amount of like open to, so 
it was it was such a and it had this very kind of religious feel. It's also one of the most depressing things that I'd, I'd seen in my career. And yeah, you you, you do really get this religious feel. Oh, but before, uh, I'm starting to run out of time. There was a couple things I wanted to say while I still had you. This has obviously been a super fun conversation. Um, I'm sorry if I was talking too much. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sure, uh, go for it. Right. Well, the first can, thing can is, have, I hope we have time for one more question after this. Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, okay. Perfect. So, shoot. I, I, uh, I really want to want everybody to know that um, uh, uh, Nico Perino, who is our our VP of Communications, as a passion project and on his own, and he's not a filmmaker, decided to do a full length documentary on the life and times of of Ira Glasser, the former head of the ACLU. Um, it's uh, it's a gorgeous documentary. It doesn't look at all like it's a first time, you know, director uh, uh, doing this. It, it comes out on basically like most streaming services tomorrow. Um, and it's, it's, on our, it's part of our ongoing attempt to be as creative as possible, teaching people about the very counterintuitive ideas about freedom of speech. And it includes why the ACLU defended the Nazis at Skokie. It, it, it's part of it. And it even ends with, um, uh, with, with uh, one of the leading people on the other side of the argument saying that they shouldn't march and Ira reconciling with each other. It's an absolutely beautiful movie and, and it comes out uh, everywhere tomorrow. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So here, here's that, that last question. So is it how dare you? Basically, yeah, the, no, it's not how dare you. It's, um, it's, sir, I think it's incredibly topical because of the pandemic and how almost all of academia is like all my classes this semester are a hundred percent online. Yeah. Um, so I think this question is, is very, very, very topical. So, uh, the, it says basically professors at places, uh, in colonial times, professors at places such as Harvard and Princeton uh, were required to make regular appearances in the churches associated with their institution, formally converting to Christianity and joining the denomination in question was often a condition of hire. Wow. And a, and a prof could be fired for espousing atheism or making fun of Christian beliefs, even if he did so outside of the classroom among friends in a private setting. Uh-huh. People informed on each other with depressing regularity. It was, a, it was a gossipy world. It was an ugly world. And we appear to be in a hurry to return to it. An, incre- an increasingly long list of people um, are being told what they can and cannot say on social media. Policies are being put in place with clearly stipulated sanctions for those who violate them. Uh, to some extent, this is little more than a codification of common sense. Uh, but these policies usually go far beyond the realm of common sense. Um, are we moving uh, toward a world that looks a lot like the world of ancient Athens, uh, where the freedom to speak your mind in public about important political matters is the exclusive privilege of a tiny percentage of the population? And if we are moving in this direction, what can we do to stop it? Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the, we, the, the answer is, are we moving backwards? Um, the answer is first, no, um, because history does not, in fact, repeat itself. Um, you know, although people tend to think of history as a cycle, it's not. Um, but are we moving back to um, uh, some psychological tendencies that we seem to have as a species that are um, con- uh, that are conformity that, that prize conformity? Um, you know uh, that that have sort of superstitious um, uh, and 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 sort of religious um, uh, types uh, emotional valence. 
uh, highly moral, moralized, highly moralistic. Yes. So like in that sense, do I think that this, but that's one of the reasons why I keep on hitting that this is kind of a reversion to the mean. This is what I mean by censorship gravity, that essentially it pulls us back and you have to, you have to have energy to sort of keep, uh, uh, to, to keep those, those forces at bay. So I do think that um, we are reverting to something that feels a lot more um, conformist a lot more. Um, and, and this is on the right and the left, like the, the, um, and, I, I, and you know, it's also, like I said, it's, it's a big part of the rule of human history. What do we do to fight it? Um, the answer is everything. Okay. But I, I, I totally, totally down with that. I guess what I find most important about the question is, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the work that fire does is about what academics can and cannot say, yeah. Um, in the classroom or in their in their published work, but increasingly it seems for, like first the frontier thing, is social yeah. media. For, for well, oh right, okay. So first thing that academia has to do, um, and uh, and high school has to do, is we have to start actually getting these kind of small L liberal lessons into into school because thinking. Um, from the point of view of liberal science, Jonathan Rauch's uh, Jonathan yeah Jonathan Rauch's work for the epistemological system that that that, that we that we have our epistemic system that we have um, is. Uh, uh, it's hard. It's, it, it, it doesn't feel right. It goes against a lot of our, uh, he wrote a wonderful book, Kindly Inquisitors, and he's writing a new book called Constitution of Knowledge um, uh, that, that, that is absolutely killer. Um, now, so we need that in high schools and we need that in orientation and we need to explain it early and often. Um, and there, there is some movement towards doing that. It just has to be even more intense. Now, how do we square this with social media? I think in some cases with social media, we're almost asking too much of ourselves um, that we, that we're dealing with a uh, disruptive technology on the order of um, the printing press. Uh, and we want it we want to figure it out. We want to fix it um, as quickly as possible um, as it generates uh, certain uh, unpredicted social ills or ones that we might have suspected were, 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 go- were going to happen when it's really a pretty freaking new technology. Um, and I think that in the rush to kind of try to uh, uh, um, uh, undo so, some, some of the social evils it's creating, we might actually be creating a situation where we're, you know, um, uh, 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 killing the goose that laid the golden eggs. Like, I, I think that I, my, my first instinct on what to do with social media is study the living hell out of it. Um, I, I said this on, on, on Brett Weinstein's show too, but I think Twitter is the closest to what, to, to what the mind of the species, you know, what human beings look like from second to second, the closest glimpse we've ever had, because it's immediate reactions, then it's short, and it's, it's from the gut. This is, this is the biggest realm of, of, of information about human nature that we've ever gotten to study, all happening at once and all coming right to us. Like, there's something, there's still something very exciting about it. Is it disruptive and harmful? Oh my God, yes, in all sorts of ways. Um, and, uh, but I think that, you know, I read Emily Bazelon's piece in the New York Times uh, Magazine. I have tremendous respect for her, but it does seem that academics are always like, well, this is the end of freedom of speech. Well, this is why, why we have to re- rethink the First Amendment. I'm like, oh, is it again? You know, like, are, like, it seems like every problem is something that means we have to reconsider freedom of speech. I do think that, for example, you know, so, that we should be trying all sorts of experiments, not the least of which is, 
you know, a social media platform for people who, you know, connect the, 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 the only people who are like verified users can actually use. And I know that sounds crazy, but the disinformation stuff does scare me. Like the idea that there can be, you know, foreign powers and there are, to be clear, foreign powers trying to manipulate us by, you know, um, hacking into a lot of our, our moralistic sentiments. That's a real problem, but it's not, um, it's not going to be solved just by, you know, well, let's limit the legal definition of free speech. You have to give some cultural mechanisms some time to work. Um, you have to uh, figure out if people develop norms around it. I do think that there are communities on Twitter. Like, I, I'm very critical of Twitter, but I love Twitter. Like, I, 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 I don't listen to the trolls. I follow thinkers and authors that I really respect. I crack jokes with people who I know I can crack jokes with, and I try to ignore the rest. Um, and I think that there, there are societal ways that we are already adapting to some of the madness of this Twitter. And I'm afraid that some of the response to this incredibly new massive phenomena is going to be worse than, worse than the disease. And also forgetting that things that people do actually create norms to, to adjust. But I do think that, you know, the threat of disinformation is, is real, but you know, one of the ways that people deal with that is by becoming better consumers of it. So I, I, I think that, it's too much to ask what the solution is to social media right this second. Having it less central in your life is probably a good idea. I definitely think that, you know, particularly if I had young girls, I wouldn't want them on it. Um, and so I'd probably put off putting them on it until as late as, as, late as possible. But I do think that um, the, we're in the middle of the very early stages of one of the most disruptive information technologies in human history. And it's almost too much to ask that we know what the answer to fix it is right now. And you ended on a on a on a note of doubt, which is so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, f- I find great uh, peace in doubt. <laughs> yeah, no, so so do I actually. The, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, this was this was really really fun, and uh, I would love to uh, to do this again. Maybe uh, maybe when um, when you're done with the meritocracy trap, because I I think that book um, sort of answers a lot of a lot of the things that you brought up. Oh, that's great. I, I, it's, I have to read it a second time because I, to fully internalize, it's, it's a very deeply wise book. But he, he has, I think, a lot of the answers to what the root problems, in the same way that the coddling goes at a lot of the roots of these problems, he goes at a lot of the, uh, the roots, but from a different tack, from a, from a guy who's been at Yale Law School for decades and who has seen this from an, from an institutional as opposed to a cultural uh, perspective. And it's, uh, it's very, very, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> but, uh, I'm looking forward yeah. to reading that. Well, real pleasure. Um, the, uh, and you know, let me know when, any idea when you think this will go up. All right. We'll do. All right. <laughs> Take care. Absolutely. Take care.